Welcome, everybody. It's nice to see you all here for our February University Colloquium. Uh, thanks to those of you who are here in person and also those of you who are joining us on Facebook Live. We're very pleased to have Marty Eads with us this afternoon, who's going to be talking about her work uh, on reading Ron Rash. Uh, Marty has been a faculty member in the language and literature department here at EMU since, uh, I believe, 2003, am I right? Yeah. Did her doctorate at University of North Carolina before that and has uh, published work on Ron Rash and other authors, has a long list of, of uh, journal articles and book chapters. So looking very much forward to hearing what she has to share with us today. She's brought a couple of uh, co-presenters with her and I'll let her introduce them a little bit later. So for now, welcome Marty. Thank you very much, Fred, for that introduction. And thank you all for being here. It's really a joy to have an opportunity to talk about one of my most rewarding teaching experiences to date. And um, so I am really grateful that, that you all are here to learn along with me. And um, I hope we'll be able to share in the Q&A and continue to unearth insights about trauma awareness and resilience. I really appreciate the work that Rhonda Rittenhouse and Diane Farrar and Jennifer Ulrich have done to help make this event happen, and um, as well as the expertise of Clay Showalter, who is working with tech. And I am really extra happy to have two collaborators, as Fred mentioned. Um, Hannah and Maria are EMU undergrads who took part in the class on this subject in the fall of 2022, the class that just finished in December. And it grew out of my fall sabbatical in 2021. And I see a few other members of that class here, and so it's um, lovely to have you all, and I hope you'll speak up during the Q&A with your insights as well. Um, I also want to acknowledge Michelle Roberts, who is the program director at the Dean House. I'm imagining that most local folks are familiar with the Gemeinschaft Home. It's a 90-day-plus recovery program for formerly incarcerated men just up the hill from campus on Mount Clinton Pike. Dean House is its little sister program, and that's where my fall sabbatical work took place and then the class this fall. So um, Michelle Roberts was very gracious in introducing me to her residents and supporting our shared work both semesters. And then this past fall for the class, Jennifer Davis-Sensenig, Kent Sensenig, and Cher Weidelich welcomed the Dean House residents, my EMU students, and me into their beautiful meeting space at Community Mennonite Church, which is right next door to the Dean House. In fact, I think Community Mennonite might own the property, or did at one time. So those of you who worship at Community Mennonite, thanks for um, your part in keeping that facility going. Of course, funding from the provost's office and the support of the faculty status committee, along with my departmental colleagues, made everything possible. So thank you, Fred and Kirsten Beachy, Kevin Seidel, Vi Dutcher, and other people who covered for me while I wasn't teaching as much as I usually do. So my plan for today is to pay tribute 
to Ron Rash, the writer on whose fiction I relied to do this work. Um, also to the STAR program, Strategies in Trauma Awareness and Resilience at EMU Center for Justice and Peacebuilding, because that material provides the framework for what I do. Um, I also want to acknowledge and, and thank the open-minded and open-hearted Dean House women who read along with me, and then the bright and flexible EMU students represented here by Hannah and Maria, who joined me in the second leg of the journey. Um, warning, there may be some fiction spoilers, but I hope that prospect won't send you scurrying from the room. If you're like I am, you kind of knew what was going to happen to Romeo and Juliet before you saw the play for the first time or read it for the first time, and maybe you're like me too and you still hope they'll you know, put aside that poison chalice and they never do. So. Um, I think similarly, you can still enjoy these Ron Rash stories even if you know what's going to happen. But um, I think that Ron Rash's stories are just as worthy as Shakespeare's plays of reading and reading again. Now, that's pretty high praise, I realize. And you may wonder, on what do I base it? But I don't want to spend a lot of time today justifying a comparison between Ron Rash and William Shakespeare. But I'm still not the very first person to link the two. In fact, the publication Garden and Gun, from which this photo comes, referred to Rash as the blue-collar bard in their latest profile of him. And quite a few literary critics, academics, have compared the central character in his most famous novel, Serena, to Lady Macbeth. I actually prefer an earlier Rash novel, The World Made Straight, to Serena, and I have taught it in an EMU senior sem four times now, most recently with music faculty program Kyle Remnant. That book opens doors to conversations with students about the effects of personal and cultural trauma, including substance abuse as both a cause and an effect of trauma. For my work at Dean House, however, Rash's unforgettable short stories have offered many of the same possibilities while being sufficiently self-contained to explore in standalone conversations. And perhaps you've picked up a copy of the handout that's circulating. Jennifer has some at the back. Um, the handout lists on one side the stories that I've used in these projects, and they're keyed to the, the volumes of short stories from which they come. So there's a list of um, Ron Rash's books at the bottom, but that list is not complete. It only contains, it's only um, inclusive of the, the ones that have the stories I use. So Rash, who holds the Paris Chair of Creative Writing at Western Carolina University in Cullowee, North Carolina, explores many other issues in his fiction and poetry, including environmental and economic injustice, political polarization, and the capacity of creation and the creative arts to help us heal. I came to appreciate his work on addiction about 10 years ago when I read his short story, Deep Gap. Set in a small community about halfway between my hometown of Boone, North Carolina, and the town in neighboring Wilkes County where many of my extended family live, Deep Gap depicts a father who is desperate to deliver his adult son from addiction. After reading this story, I emailed Ron Rash to thank him for writing so compassionately about both parent and child in the story, noting that the plot reflects a reality that some of my relatives were living. 
I shared a detail from their journey, and in his reply, Rash noted that his family experience has been painfully similar. I'm guessing that nearly everyone in this room, if not every single one of us, can relate to some degree to the story and the events that it recounts. But to leap from finding a story moving to thinking that it might actually help someone in the throes of addiction probably seems unrealistic, or it might seem unrealistic. Um, to those who have tried repeatedly to recover from addiction, having invested dollars, time, and tears, the prospect of simply reading about drug abuse and its effects might seem as futile as slapping a Band-Aid or even a smiley face sticker on a festering wound. Still, might it help some way? I've been asking this question since before my first sabbatical in 2015, when the late Richie Yowell and I shared a vision for using literature to help educate formerly incarcerated men about trauma. At that time, Richie worked in programming at the Gemeinschaft Home. And before I could even pitch my program to him in our first meeting, he was selling me on it. He said he believed that reading stories about trauma would provide his residents with kind of a roundabout route to their own pain and let them reflect on it with, uh, without being quite as confrontational as, as more direct conversation. So with his support and help from EMU counseling graduate student Shirley Stewart-Jones, who was interning there, I spent that fall sharing Rash's short fiction anthology, Something Rich and Strange, with Gemeinschaft residents. And um, as the slide excerpt here that includes um, a little bit from some of his other stories, Rash knows how to grab readers' attention. So these quotations here come from a Goodreads plug from some anonymous fan who, who offered these sentences. Um, I met Leanne McIntyre on a date suggested by my wife. Kelly always read the personals as she drank her morning coffee. So how's that for an opener? Um, another, when Ricky threw his knife and the blade tore my blouse and cut into flesh eight inches from my heart, it was as certain as blood trickling down my arm that something in our relationship had gone wrong. So these are, are attention-grabbing stories. And so the Gemeinschaft residents and I read aloud and discussed them and the insights they offered about harm, guilt, repentance, and survival. Of all the stories we read, the men responded most powerfully to one about addiction called The Ascent, over which I actually feared that a fight might break out. And uh, Marie is going to tell you about The Ascent in a few minutes. But the impact of that particular story and then subsequently learning about bibliotherapy, the practice of guided reading for therapeutic outcomes, piqued my interest in curating a focused collection of rash stories about addictions that might prove helpful to people in recovery. With that idea in mind and with the opening of Dean House, I contacted Michelle Roberts to see if she'd be interested. I knew that her cohort would be a lot smaller than the Gemeinschaft group, which seemed good to me. And most of the men at Gemeinschaft are employed during the day, and so they could only meet at night. And um, the situation at Dean House was a little different. They have no more than 11 people at a time, or that was the case then, and uh, with the possibility of day reports. But um, like Richie Yao, Michelle was trauma-informed, and she wanted to offer more programming, so she was really enthusiastic about our launching this project. And um, 
So I began heading to Dean House every Tuesday afternoon during the first fall of COVID, carrying copies of Something Rich and Strange, along with other resources to share. So not knowing how ready the Dean House women would be to dive directly into discussions of addiction, I selected for our first session a story called Love and Pain, which some might say I'm stretching to call an addiction story. In this tale that first appeared in The Night the New Jesus Fell to Earth, Rash's MFA book project, and then was reprinted in Something Rich and Strange, the protagonist, Randy, divulges some details about his divorce that hint at a drinking problem. But his most obvious addiction is to his sexy, soon-to-be ex-wife, Darlene. Love and Pain is among the darkly funniest of Rash's stories, and I hoped that laughter would help break the ice. It did. Maybe I'm stretching, too, to call that first gathering a group, because only three of us met that day on the Dean House front porch. One of the women, whom I'll call Faith, appeared to be in her early to mid-twenties, her mascaraed eyes a striking blue above her mask, and her blonde hair streaked with magenta, ponytailed high on her head. The other woman, Deborah, was closer to my age, I guess, but not by a lot. She was probably in her late 30s, still young enough maybe to be my daughter. Her smoky voice, which I soon found to be laughter-filled, made her sound older. And by the end of that first meeting, I was marveling at her interpretive insight. First, though, the three of us exchanged names, and I told them why I was there during my semester-long sabbatical from university teaching. I wanted to share stories that I love in the hope of affirming and extending resilience. And I thought it might be nice to make some new friends. Why are you here, I asked. Although I meant, why are you here on this porch for this hour, they answered existentially. I'm here because I keep making wrong choices. I'm here because I thought love meant spending time with a guy who puts a needle in my arm. I'm here because I'd like to live with my children again. I listened, feeling a little bit as if I needed to raise a hand to kind of ward off the flow of words and emotions. I hadn't intended to pry. I'd expected to hear, I'm here because the program director told me I had to be. Or I'm here because I saw the publicity flyer and I like to read. Or I'm here because this might be more interesting than what's going on in the house. I couldn't help but wonder too, why these women were telling me so much. And how might these revelations unsettle me, knock me off plumb, as Ron Rash's characters describe it? Soon, though, the confessions subsided, at least for that week. Faith and Deborah weren't trying to fill the hour with their own words to avoid reading Rash's or to cast a verbal spell over me. They were ready to receive what I'd brought, so I handed them copies of something rich and strange. I gave each of them a bookmark of sorts, too, a copy of a meme my Pentecostal pastor friend Dan had sent me just that morning, an image of a high-paneled library complete with a pair of red upholstered chairs and a globe, over which is superimposed an observation attributed to James Baldwin. You think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world? But then you read. The two women nodded. They got it or were willing at least to trust me on it. We took turns reading aloud on the sun-dappled porch, pausing to discuss lines that made us laugh, and there were plenty. Um, describing the breakdown of his marriage, Rash's character Randy recounts the transfer of Darlene's affections to Stanley, the veterinarian psychologist 
who had treated little Napoleon, the pet monkey they'd adopted when they were unable to conceive. Randy says, Darlene had said she needed something else to love, something more than me. I couldn't give her a child, so I drove to Charlotte. A spider monkey was the closest thing I could find. She had loved the monkey and at first even loved me again. It was the Indian summer of our marriage. We were like a family. Every Friday after supper, we would go to Green's Cafe and eat banana splits and play putt-putt, just like any other family. I tried my best. I even went with Darlene and little Napoleon to Stanley's office for his shots and checkups. But the monkey hated me from the very beginning. So Randy goes on to talk about how the monkey would wait until he would get up in the night to use the restroom and bite his leg. Randy wasn't entirely devastated when he accidentally killed little Napoleon in the clothes dryer, but he said that brought the marriage to an end. It was over by the rinse cycle. So the washing machine, not the dryer. So when we finished this outrageous yet oddly poignant story, we wrestled with an ambiguous aspect of the conclusion and then considered what we still wanted to know. How big a factor in the breakup was Randy's drinking? What would Darlene say if she could tell the story? What was the nature of Randy's dependence on her? And just as I would ask my EMU students, I asked, well, is he a reliable narrator? And you can see on the handout how the sequence of stories enabled us over the semester to practice analyzing fiction along with fostering trauma awareness. As our first 90-minute session drew to a close, I promised Deborah and Candy that if they'd come back next week, they'd get to see Randy faring better in a follow-up story. And they did come along with two more women, whom I'll call Candy and Autumn. Candy was a good bit older than the others and somewhat preoccupied, understandably that day, by a medical challenge. Um, Autumn was younger and seemed a little shy, but both she and Candy were tolerant of and eventually engaged meaningfully in the conversation. Faith and Deborah summarized the previous week's story for them. This new story focused on Randy's emergence from depression and homelessness upon embarking with a buddy he suspects to be a few sandwiches short of a picnic on a new business venture, which was raising possums to sell to high-end restaurants up north. Yes, this story, entitled Redfish, Possums, and the New South, is just as preposterous as the first. Once again, we savored the silliness, but then we talked about how plots work. I shared an insight from Robert Morgan, who was a mentor of Ron Rash's and another favorite fiction writer of mine, also from Western North Carolina. Bob Morgan says that when he was in screenwriting class, his teacher told him, when you've got a character who wants something real bad and it's hard to get, you've got a good story. So I introduced the Frytag, which some of you may remember from high school English classes, the Frytag Pyramid, for tracking plots considering where the story's climax occurs. And then I gave everybody a diagram of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and we traced Randy's trajectory from living out of his truck and bathing in the river, because Darlene and Stanley got the house, uh, at the beginning of the story, um, to ending up with a modest but promising poultry operation. He'd given up his dream of farming in an effort to please the social climbing Darlene, but now that she was out of the picture, he was able to reclaim that dream. So on the backs of their handouts, the women sketched their own pyramids and then described how their perceived needs have changed over time. 
Faith recounted a series of false starts on recovery, explaining how committing to the Dean House recovery program signaled real change for her. Stories spilled forth, stories of disappointment as well as achievement. One that still haunts me is Candy's description of overhearing her boyfriend's pastor warn him against her and describe her as bad news. So Candy's willingness to recount that incident gave me the courage to raise the emotional stakes considerably in the next week. Autumn and Faith were at work that day, but Deborah and Candy were present and ready to read a story called Those Who Are Dead Are Only Now Forgiven about high school sweethearts named Jody and Lauren. A few pages in, Deborah noticed Rash's strategic use of flashbacks, impressing me with her facility for critical analysis. I stopped her several times when she was reading so that we could discuss the narration. Eventually, though, she paused on her own. The character's home community sounded like her own in Elkton, she said, with everyone knowing her, her family, and her past. I have every reason to leave, she said, but I find every excuse to stay. As she and Candy compared Rash's characters to people in their own lives, Deborah proposed some categories. She called them the empathetic, the sympathetic, and the virgins. The empathetic are other people in recovery. The sympathetic are like Jody in the story, not a drug user himself, but compassionate and willing to consider why his girlfriend Lauren is. Virgins, Deborah said, included Lauren's judgmental brother, Trey, in the story, who not only has never taken drugs, but also won't even try to understand why his sister has. When Jody, the boyfriend, suggests to the brother, Trey, that perhaps the accidental death of Lauren's and Trey's father have made Lauren vulnerable, Trey notes that he's born up just fine under the same tragedy. So at this point, engaging the STAR program chart on responses to stress and trauma helped us understand how two siblings might respond differently to the same loss. We talked also about the term traumagenic, uh, which acknowledges that extreme circumstances might cause trauma for some, but not for others who seem to be just as close to the situation. Moreover, we recognize that even those who experience the same events as traumatic, might respond to it in different ways. Candy identified readily with this information and shared with us that one of her parents had committed suicide in her presence when she was six and that she was subsequently abused by a grandparent. The people who should have loved me hurt me, she told us. Her stories were painful to hear, but I'm sure far, far more painful to have lived. But, but like Lauren with Jody. Candy gave a lot of credit to her romantic partner, who has remained loyal, at least to the point that our program ended, um, despite his pastor's warnings about her. We talked for a long time about the story's use of religious symbolism and even longer about its conclusion. Jody's faithfulness isn't sufficient to deliver Lauren. So we asked whether Jesus' faithfulness might have been. So the Dean House and Gemeinschaft programs are not formally faith-based, but these women were very interested in spiritual matters, and they spoke about their, their spiritual lives. We asked whether a brother more robustly Christian than Trey and a church community more supportive might have made a difference for Lauren. Of course, speculating about a story's alternative endings is an exercise in futility, as much fun as it might be. But the conclusions of our own stories have yet to be written. In our follow-up discussion 
of those who are dead are only now forgiven. We took the ACEs, or Adverse Childhood Experiences quiz, as if we were Lauren and then Jody. Researchers have observed that individuals with ACE scores of five or higher are seven to 10 times more likely to report illicit drug use um, compared to those without ACEs and are four to 12 times more likely to become drug abusers. Although the short story doesn't divulge every detail of the characters' lives, apparent traumagenic events in their lives included the losses of both their fathers, so Lawrence died in a workplace accident, and Jody's abandoned the family. Um, also, they both um, had survived chronic poverty and bullying in school. On that occasion, a newcomer to Dean House, named I'll call her Katie, said, I didn't really have an event like that. I just started using. She paused, then said, I've always struggled with my weight. When I started using, the weight fell off. People complimented me, and I love that. I like the buzz, too, but I really like being thin. My dad used to tease me about my weight, she continued. My parents are great, but he kidded me a lot. You'll never find a husband, he'd say. After more discussion, we turned to the story that had so moved me, Deep Gap. We read a little, then stopped to discuss the father, Marshall's anger toward the two pairs of drug dealers whom he blamed for his son Brad's addiction. My parents are like that, Katie said. They blame the person who introduced me to drugs, but it wasn't her fault. We were friends. We took a weekend trip, and I asked her if she had any weed or beer. I have something better, she said. I thought it was cocaine. It was meth. We resumed reading, stopping again after a passage in which Brad's entrenchment in addiction is, is evident. I was like that, Katie volunteered. My parents got me into rehab, but I didn't want it. I wasn't ready. Finally, I got arrested. They could have bailed me out, but my mom said maybe I needed to be there. The last time I'd been home, I was high in their house, and my little cousins were there. I wasn't stumbling around, but I was using. By this point in the story, Marshall has gotten Brad an apartment and a Camry. We pause again when Katie chuckles. I would love to have my own place, she confides, but it's better for me to be here. I can only keep $80 a month from my paycheck. If I had it all, I'd be spending it. Not on drugs necessarily, just on stuff. You need the structure now, I asked. Yes. We continued reading until the point at which Marshall threatens to report one of the local drug dealers to the police, and he's a young man with whom his son had grown up. Both Katie and Candy were disgusted. I'd never tell, Candy said. That would be a snitch. But what if you were the parent, I asked. You have kids. She has a son who OD'd, Katie told me. And a daughter in jail, Candy said. They asked me who the dealers were, but I didn't tell. It's none of their business. Nine times out of ten, if someone's buying, the dealer's not knocking on their door. The person is knocking on the dealer's door. Katie agreed. I don't blame my friend. I asked her if she had anything. I brought it up. And you know what? I've never told my parents this because they blame her, but she's the only one who got through to me. Isn't that something? She came to me and said, you don't want to end up like me. She told me to get clean. She didn't believe in herself, but she believed in me. The women's commitment to taking responsibility for their choices, even when their past reflected so much pain, impressed me. Deep Gap's main character, Marshall, keeps looking for others to blame. The ex-wife who'd left when Brad was little, the drug dealers, the people responsible for the disappearance of good jobs from their rural community. Rash makes clear, however, that Marshall fears that he himself is to blame for his son's descent into substance abuse. The themes of blame, guilt, and shame were all too familiar to the Dean House women, but they demonstrated remarkable strength in how they faced them. 
We looked at the star cycles of violence model, noting how guilt, shame, and fantasies of revenge are common in the acting in cycle. Addiction is common too. And on the back of your handout, you'll see this model, which I just couldn't resist sharing with you because I think it's so helpful to, to many of us, most of us probably. Um, Deborah was absent for that particular discussion, but she was the only person present the following week, so we decided to discuss Deep Gap instead of moving on to my next selection. And while I was always disappointed when somebody who had attended didn't show up on another week, I was kind of glad to get to talk to Deborah alone because I thought she was kind of a literary genius. <laughs> and um, so I just I wanted to find out what her plans were for after Dean House. And she explained that she had pretty good prospects because she already had two associate's degrees, one in healthcare and the other in the legal field. I always loved English, though, she said. I used to want to be a teacher or maybe a librarian, even in middle school. And so I said, well, have you thought about going back to school? And she said, I got into EMU in high school, but I got pregnant. And EMU didn't, well, had certain policies. And then I got married and I had my daughter. But I like EMU and I think I'd be eligible for grant money. So my wheels started turning. <laughs> um, we talked about academic options and then about some of the obstacles to employment and education that she might face. Working with non-traditional students might be a good possibility. I told her about the work I'd done in the correctional system, and we dreamed a little together about her finding a place in the Gemeinschaft system, if they can hire more programming staff at some point. That then took us to Deep Gap, a story about a father with someone whose experience in a recovery facility didn't quite take. Deborah was always happy to read out loud, but I stopped her after the first paragraph, which mentions the father Marshall's gun. Since you're practically an English major, I told her, I want you to know about Chekhov, who said that if an author mentions a gun at the beginning of a story, the gun needs to fire before the stories end. So she was ready. As the weeks passed, participants cycled in and out. Some missed sessions for work, most often at traditions restaurant. Others had medical appointments. A few failed to follow program rules and had to leave. We witnessed an arrest on the porch during one session. As sad as it was to see, I was grateful that the resident was someone who had just arrived and not someone who'd become a part of our reading community. She wasn't ready to be here, one of the readers told me. As I kept adding literary terms and introducing trauma awareness tools, I had to be mindful of newcomers, and we did a lot of review. Sometimes we would repeat an entire story, finding new insights and applications. The general movement over the semester was outward, from the individual character struggling with substance abuse to her lover, her parents, her children, and then to the wider society. One of the stories I was most eager to discuss, Ransom, comes from Rash's newest collection. This story about a parent's attempt to take revenge on the pharmaceutical mogul he blames for his child's opioid addiction seemed ideal for the fall 2021 news cycle. Not only had the Sackler family been in the papers for months, but trials involving mar major pharmacy chains were underway. I'd heard a radio report on them the day before, one October session, so I printed out some articles about corporate culpability. The Dean House residents and I had been talking about fault and blame, and while I didn't want to undermine their laudable efforts to take responsibility for their choices, 
I wondered if they were really aware of the degree to which they and other addicted people they love, and we love, are part of a vast and sometimes hard to see ecosystem. Deborah and Candy were there for that session, and the story's impact on them was as powerful as it had been on me. It's horrifying, fascinating, and disturbingly satisfying. Some aspects of the story's connection to the news surprised them, but what they had to say surprised me. Candy shared that her late son's substance abuse disorder originated with a pain medication prescribed by a local physician who gained notoriety for fostering addiction. The doctor had lost his license, she said, but not before causing a world of pain. As the conversation continued, Candy revealed that she'd grown so worried about her son's desperation and that he might um, result in, he might take fentanyl-laced street drugs so she'd actually provided him with opioids from dealers she trusted. Here was a mom I'd gotten to know, a fellow learner I really liked, who obviously loved her children, telling us that she had fed her own son's addiction. I think I'd previously been too naive to realize that such situations existed, but her confession has helped me think more deeply about the lengths to which a loving parent might go in an effort to help her suffering child. Candy and I shared the experience of being moms, as we did with many of the other women in the program, but her life circumstances have been much, much harder than my own. A latecomer to the program, however, added to the diversity of the Dean House population. Like the other women I'd gotten to know, Melanie is a white Rockingham County native, but she'd never been incarcerated. She'd had the benefits of considerable formal education. In fact, she mentioned on one occasion that she loved the plays of Edward Albee. And um, her addiction had resulted in the loss of a job in which she'd taken pride. So rather than being assigned to it by a judge to take part in the Dean House program, she had chosen the self-pay option. She was present for our discussion of a story entitled Overtime uh, that explores intersectionality of class, race, and substance abuse disorder susceptibility. As we discussed so many medical, emotional, spiritual, and social complexities, I was grateful to be able to provide sources of encouragement. Chief among them is the SNAIL model from STAR, which traces a path toward healing after trauma. So maybe you notice those smaller um, circles on the bottom are the same, they represent the same cycles of acting in and acting out that are on the diagram that you have in the handout. But then, this shows how people break out and the stages that often take place, beginning with mourning and grieving, naming and confronting fears, accepting loss and memorializing. Now, these steps don't always happen in the same order, um, for, uh, and um, they don't, people don't always go through all of these, but this is one path that the STAR program designers have, have identified. And um, so we were able to see in an, another of Rash's recent stories called Last Bridge Burn, um, characters, well, one who was in recovery, who um, extends grace to someone else in the throes of addiction, and evident growth in each of these characters. One of them actually memorializes her addiction and recovery journey in a song. So we talked about how art promotes healing and resilience. We also considered how the Dean House women's children will grow in hope through watching their mom's recoveries. I shared with them also a form of prayer designed for helping people pass the peace, uh, a prayer that Mary Thiessen Nation, a friend of mine who's retired from the seminary here, had shared with me. 
So as the reading program drew to a close, both Candy and Deborah were approaching graduation from the program. I asked if they were ready to leave. Candy said she tried not to think about it because doing so makes time pass so slowly. She and Deborah joked about how the last day of incarceration is agonizing. And um, Candy mentioned having been incarcerated for eight years and reminded Deborah of a detail she'd shared about her last day in jail. They forgot me, Deborah said. They didn't even have me on the list. I reminded them that I'd been writing up notes on our conversations, that I wanted to share what they'd had to say, but I didn't want to violate their privacy. They agreed that they're happy for me to share. You can use my name. I don't care, Deborah said. Candy expressed the same willingness. Can we read it after you write it, Deborah asked. I asked them what else they wanted me to include, and Deborah wondered if I'd convey what I'd learned from them. Yes, absolutely, I'd said. Anyone who might read my account of our time together isn't likely to care all that much about what an English teacher thinks. They'll want to know what you all think. I was so grateful to them for sharing their hard-won wisdom with me, and then to Michelle for permitting me to return the following year with EMU students. Our weekly Monday visits were a component in a two-credit half-semester course in which we spent Wednesdays and Fridays discussing crime and punishment, a book that's had a profound impact on Ron Rash. My return to Dean House with students was quite different from my solo experience. We had to make a lot of adjustments, and I think arrangements will need to change further if we repeat the course. Assessing the benefit of either semester for Dean House women has been difficult because the enrollments were always shifting. So I did have evaluations from that first group, but uh, you know it's it's kind of hard to know what will stick with them. But I think it's it's very clear that the EMU students ended up benefiting from some of the realizations that blessed me. Um, how timely and urgent this work is, how perceptive and open-hearted the Dean House residents are, and how very much we share with one another. So Maria and Hannah will tell you a little bit about themselves and about the impact of one of the stories on each of them. And then the three of us will take questions. Hi everyone, my name is Maria and I'm a junior here at EMU. So growing up, I had always heard messages that people with addictions, um, specifically drug addictions, were not very good people or maybe selfish. And I was always told to just kind of stay away from quote unquote people like that or um, stick with the right crowd. And I had also only heard of negative outcomes of people in my family who had struggled with addiction. However, this class really opened up my heart and my mind, um, and it helped me to see past all of these other messages that I had always heard. And the Ron Rash story that really stuck out to me is called The Ascent that Marty mentioned. Um, the Ascent is a story about a young boy called Jared, and it starts out with him out in the wilderness on his own in the middle of a snowstorm. And he clearly has a very vivid imagination. Um, he pretends that a girl from his class at school is with him and that he, he pretends to fight a bear. Um, and eventually he actually finds the site of an airplane crash um, and he was playing in it. And there was even description of a woman who was presumably not alive from the crash. Um, she was sitting in the passenger seat. 
And a, a couple quotes from descriptions of this woman say, her body bent forward like a horseshoe and her hair was frozen like icicles. And Jared found a ring on this woman's finger and he took it home with him. And when he arrived home, the author made it clear through descriptions that his parents were drug addicts. Um, and eventually his parents found the ring that he had found in the woods. Um, and the parents were concerned and debating about whether or not it was real gold. Um, and eventually his dad took it into town, into a town called Bryson City to sell it. And when Jared woke up the next morning, his parents had clearly bought more drugs to use. Um, but his dad had also bought him his favorite cereal and a used mountain bike as a Christmas present. And so they were clearly showing a little bit of love through these actions. And a day or two later, Jared woke to his parents feeling very, looking very ill. And he told them that they could take his bike into Bryson City to sell it. But his mom said no because it was his Christmas present and they really wanted him to have it. Um, and so eventually Jared went back to the airplane crash site to play around again, and he ended up finding a watch that was on another man that was also in the airplane. And he took it home and gave it to his parents, and his parents thanked him profusely and said that he was the best son. Um, and his parents were debating about how much they thought it would sell for, and eventually they left in their pickup truck for town again. And for one last time, Jared goes out to play by the plane crash, um, and he pretends to fix the plane, and he gets into it to pretend to fly away. And I just want to read the last few sentences of the short story, um, because I think it's really important. So it says, After a while, he began to shiver, but after a longer while, he was no longer cold. And Jared looked out the side window and saw the whiteness was not only in front of him, but below. He knew then that they had taken off and risen so high that they were enveloped inside a cloud. But still he looked down, waiting for the clouds to clear so he might look for the pickup as it followed the winding road toward Bryson City. Uh, we read this class, we read the story just as a class and without the Dean House women. Um, and this, the ending really struck a chord with us. We were, it felt really ambiguous and we were kind of debating as a class about what might have happened to Jared if um, he had passed away or maybe something else happened. Um, and I came to the conclusion personally that he had died because of maybe a lack of care from his parents. He was left to go out into the wilderness on his own in the freezing cold. And I was thinking that if these characters had been real people and these events had actually happened, most people, including myself, from an outside perspective, probably would have seen them as um, bad parents or maybe really selfish. Um, and then even though maybe his parents did demonstrate some selfishness, there were still some cracks revealed that I saw where there was love shown through the gift giving and through um, just the way they talked to him was really loving. Um, but unfortunately, the addiction that they had was just too overpowering. And that's why I think places like Dean House are just really important. Um, and humanizing people struggling with addiction um, is really crucial. And talking to them instead of brushing them off as selfish can be really beneficial. And it's vital that we as the outside world, outside communities, make the effort to see people as human beings rather than their addictions or struggles. 
And the Dean House experience did that for me. Um, to be able to see these women in particular that we worked with and to hear their stories and understand them and their struggles just a little bit better. And here at EMU, I'm studying Spanish and peace building. And through my studies, I have been learning to reach out and work with groups of people that I wouldn't necessarily encounter in my everyday life. And for example, this semester, I'm interning with Church World Service um, that helps refugees and immigrants work through really tough obstacles they're facing. And that's something I might hope to do as a career later on. And this internship, along with Marty's class and the experience at Dean House, um, I believe they've helped to expand my worldview very greatly. And it has led me to believe that this type of work is really, really important because in order to work towards improving our world and the communities within our world, we must do the work to communicate effectively with the communities that we desire to help and serve rather than ignoring them or thinking we know what's best without asking. And I truly believe that this class has equipped me with the right tools that can help, uh, help me reach out to other communities and work with them rather than working separately from them. Hello, my name is Hannah Janikavo, and I am a senior here at EMU. Um, when Marty sent out an email asking if anybody would want to share about their experience, I sort of leapt at the opportunity. Um, as a pre-professional health studies student, I have spent quite a bit of time reading and learning about social determinants of health, addiction, psychology, even going in depth of the physiological processes that happen when we use addiction and different substances. However, no previous experience could prepare me for the journey that I would go through in Marty's class. Um, in fact, this class has had such a profound impact on me that it's probably one of my most favorite classes that I've taken here over the four years at EMU. Um, on my first day in the classroom, I was incredibly nervous and had no idea what to expect. Um, it's hard for me to believe that Rash could comprehend crime and punishment at 14 when I drastically struggled with it at 22. Um, definitely pushed my literary skills to the max. However, my favorite portion of the class was our weekly reading circles with members of a local recovery home, Dean House. Together, we read stories from Ron Rash's book, Something Rich and Strange, a collection of stories that depicted addiction in various stages, scenarios, demographics, and various attitudes towards talking about addiction. In the beginning stages of our meetings, there was some trepidation on all parties' accounts, almost as if there was a fear of oversharing, not sharing what to say, or potentially causing some uncomfortable feelings within the members. As time went on and we dove deeper into Ron Rash's stories, the group began to discuss addiction more freely, and the women bravely shared their stories and personal connections to each story that we read. One woman reminded the group that in a time of more disbelief in the actions that we were reading, that the only the person suffering from addiction can choose to make a change. They have to want it for themselves, no matter how hard their friends or family wish that they would get better. Perhaps the most important lesson that I learned from our discussion is that addiction is not linear, but rather deviating and at times sporadic. I think this message was most apparent in Ron Sprash's stories, those who are dead are only now forgiven. This story highlights a more tragic depiction of how addiction can cycle out following a relationship of high school sweethearts Lauren and Jody. Although through high school Lauren was a straight A student and she had everything going for her, including being voted most likely to succeed, after graduation, Lauren's big plans to continue her education and to escape from her small town somehow deviated from the original plan. 
Her boyfriend, Jody, was incredibly supportive of her journey and felt very protective over her, as his father had walked out on his family when he was younger, leading to a certain need to remain loyal to Lauren no matter what she did, for she was part of his family and someone that he deeply cared for and loved. Sadly, Lauren lost her father due to a tragic working accident while in her senior year. This traumatic event in her life sent her down a path that was contradictory to her previous plan. Lauren began to party, hanging out with a more troublesome crowd, and quickly found some relief through drug use. Despite his best efforts, Jody was unable to get Lauren to change her actions. Jody begins to leave for college and starts working towards a new life away from Lauren and their small town. Upon visiting his hometown during a school break, Jody sought out Lauren after hearing she had taken a darker turn. Jody found Lauren in an old, abandoned house, living in less than amiable conditions, not working, not in school, and dependent upon substances. She was an addict. Jody pleads with Lauren to leave with him, offering the money from his job and savings as a way to give them both a new life. A disgruntled and lost Lauren refuses his offer and seemingly bitter against religion in any aspect of her previous life. Perhaps the saddest moment in this story is when the cycle of acting out and addiction is realized. In the end, Jody decides he's going to offer Lauren one last chance at escaping her path. When Lauren refuses once more, a hopeless Jody places his bags through the doorway and settles on the couch beside Lauren. Then the story ends. Perhaps it's not what's written that has the greatest impact on the reader, but rather all the possibilities that could happen after the story ends. Ron Rash usually ends his stories with an ending that is left up to interpretation. In this case, all we know is that Jody has decided to join Lauren and her friends living in the abandoned house. And yet, we can only jump to conclusions knowing that Jody has given up his pursuit of a college degree, has abandoned his job, and most likely will begin drug use another victim of the acting out cycle of addiction. A young woman who had so much potential but one traumatic event and the lack of seriousness and compassion from her support groups in any effort to try to understand her trauma altered the course of her life and then another's. Trauma and addiction can cycle in, affecting the person who is active in their addiction, but it can also spiral outwards and affect all of those of the individual who is struggling. On paper, Jody had a full life ahead of him and a real chance of escaping a mundane life in his small town, and yet his affection for Lauren and the strength of her addiction overruled his decisions. He became trapped and potentially a wheel spinning in the cycle of addiction himself. The story of Lauren and Jody sparked a conversation amongst our reading group, talking about what areas we had seen active addiction and who has been affected by these choices. This seemed to be one of the few breakouts that we had with the women at Dean House. For some of them were brave enough to share their struggles and how they had affected their relationships, hearing real stories of how addiction caused pain and suffering in their lives, and seeing remorse, confusion, and sorrow in their eyes was incredibly powerful when talking about addiction. And yet, there was also hope and wonder and eagerness to grow and change in their eyes as they discussed how to identify their addiction cycles um, out and how it has allowed freedom within the program at Dean House. This experience has truly been something that's transformed my view of approaches to treatment care um, as wanting to be a physical therapist and how that impacts my potential future patients. Um, and it's been something that I've been truly honored to be a part of. Okay, I think it's now time for any questions um, you might have for Marty or either of the students. Just raise your hand, I'll bring you the mic.
Hi, um, I was just wondering like, what struggles did you guys see and like face reading the stories alongside of everyone? Like, was it really hard? Did you come home with a heavier heart that day and how did you deal with it afterwards? Um, for me personally, um, I've seen family members uh, struggle with addiction, you know, whether it be with sexual activities, drugs, substances. Um, and I think for me, it's really hard to get away from the scientific of, oh, here's what's happening in the body, and here's the psychological reason why this person can't give up the addiction. Um, and I think having that one member really remind us that, you know, the person who's suffering from addiction needs to be the person to make that choice to get help, to seek help. Um, Dean House has done an incredible job at making them understand financial security, um, food security, what like bases do they need to cover um, in order to go out back into the world. Um, and I think it was great to hear how they feel sort of marginalized within a society and that they don't fit in and there's this huge fear to go back into society. Um, so I think, you know, it was with a heavy heart that I went into those conversations of, I'm not the expert here, I don't have the answers, science isn't gonna help me here. I need to just listen and be a partner for them. Sorry. <laughs> um, I would say that when reading these stories, I they were fiction, but I always thought that they're kind of related to stories that real people also experience. And so I think that was what made it a little bit more difficult or challenging for me to think that people in real life and a lot of people unfortunately in the world experience these struggles. Um, and so just listening to it and reading it and hearing the stories of the Dean House women, um, it was a little bit difficult, but I think it's important to hear. So I, I, I greatly appreciated it. I think that, as I said, hearing some of the stories is hard, but uh, being together in a place where people are working toward change and sharing literature together made me pretty excited too. So that, that always uh, made the experiences feel worthwhile and not, not too heavy. Um, Marty or anybody else, um, does Ron Rash have stories related to war and displacement trauma or is there another author that you could recommend for those kinds of uh, traumatic stories? He does. The novel The World Made Straight is about a community in Western North Carolina that experienced neighbor-on-neighbor -neighbor violence during the Civil War, and he explores the legacy of that violence uh, that was present even when people a couple of generations later weren't consciously aware of it. And he grew up close to that area. He's explored the same material and some other stories. There's a recent one called Neighbors about political polarization during the Civil War, and he said, I really wrote that story about today. And, but he says he, you know, he's just haunted by the capacity of neighbors to turn on each other, whether it's 
you know, during the U.S. Civil War or Rwanda or Cambodia or, you know, uh, the Balkans, and um, those those questions do haunt him. Thank you. Thank you. I think I want to acknowledge some of the difficulties and complexities of our experience. Um, to some degree, I was nervous during that first semester about engaging in something like cultural tourism. But I think that the women, maybe Michelle had prepared them in a way that, that made them receive it um, really appreciatively. But when the students and I went, there were too many of us. It was, I think it was overwhelming to the Dean House women. And um, we, you know, Michelle and I took some time to try to figure out what we might do to make things go more smoothly. And one idea we had was to move it because we were coming onto their porch and there were just so many of us. <laughs> and so I, I mentioned that the people at Community Mennonite were really gracious in opening their fellowship to Hall fellowship hall to us and I think that made a huge difference um, and then there was a, a change that the students requested do y'all want to do you remember uh, what? Um, so one of the things we had talked about going into this experience was dressing in business casual attire just to make sure that we were presentable and you know we weren't wearing like shorts or baggy clothing anything that potentially could be an issue um, and one of the things, um, one of the people in our class actually pointed out was that it kind of makes us appear standoffish. And as if we're coming out of like, oh, we're better than you because we're educated and we're here at EMU and we're having this wonderful educational experience. Um, and so we switched the attire or the dress code um, with working with the um, Michelle at uh, Dean House um, of just we can wear jeans, um, we can wear leggings, we can just be our casual selves. Um, and just kind of relate to them as human beings and not as we are here from EMU to encroach on your space and prod you with questions about your life. Last call, anyone else? Thanks again, everybody. We appreciate it.